Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. Today we are studying John chapter 9 and this episode is entitled The Divisive Nature of Miracles. Let's begin with a quick review about the Gospel of John. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born, and sometime around the year 30, Jesus was crucified. Now, the Romans and the religious elite that crucified Jesus thought that that was the end of the story of Jesus. But a handful of people went out into the world and began to tell everyone they knew that Jesus rose from the dead. This went on for the next four to five decades, and sometime around the year 75, a man named Mark decided he was going to sit down and write the first biography of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. This writing became Mark's gospel, and it is the earliest biography we have of Jesus Christ. Then 10 to 20 years later, sometime around the year 90, Matthew and Luke sat down to write their accounts independently of each other of who Jesus was. But at the same time, they both had Mark's gospel. 10 to 20 years after that, John sits down hearing all the other stories about Jesus some seven decades after the death of Jesus and says to himself, you know what this story needs? It needs some poetry. And for that reason, the gospel of John is more concerned with symbolism and metaphors than historical accuracy. What that means for us today is that we put a very high priority on the symbolism contained within the stories of John, rather than assuming that John is just reporting the details. Now, John's gospel is built around seven miracles of Jesus, and today we are looking at the sixth miracle found in John chapter 9. Yes, this miracle is truly the half-blood prince of all of Jesus' miracles. So with that, let's begin reading in John chapter 9, verse 1. We read, As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. Before we go any further, we must pause here. And the reason that we need to pause is because we have to recognize what was going on in Jesus' day and age 2,000 years ago. Because anytime somebody was blind in Jesus' society, society assumed that this blind person deserved the blindness, that God was in fact the author of all, and if God did not want that person to be blind, well then God would have cured them or never allowed them to become blind in the first place. So if you were living 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine and all of a sudden you woke up with blindness one morning, people would then ask you questions like, well, what did you do to deserve this? Or, have you repented before God? If you repent, then God will cure you. So this was the theology that Jesus understood and lived in 2,000 years ago. When a baby, though, was born with a disability, well, that created a bit of a theological problem. There were some theologians who said that this baby's parents had sinned and God was punishing the parents by inflicting the disability on the baby. While this was a satisfactory answer for some, others heard this and objected. They said, how is it fair that a baby must suffer for their parents' sins? 
And so these that objected to this idea came up with another theological idea. And that idea revolved around the idea that babies could sin while they were in the wombs of their mothers. So if a fetus sinned in the womb, then God would afflict that fetus with a disability. And then the baby would be born and people would know that that fetus had in fact sinned. These were the competing theological ideas as people tried to explain suffering in their day and age. And when Jesus walks along, he encounters a man who presents a theological problem because he was born blind. Now, before we go any further, we have to acknowledge that John also never names who this man who is blind from birth is. So because of that, I'd like to give this man a name to bring some humanity to this story. And the name I have chosen for this man is, of course, none other than Chuck. So we will refer to the man who is blind from birth as Chuck. So Jesus is walking along in Jerusalem. He encounters Chuck, a man who is blind from birth. And in verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, Chuck or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, the disciples invite Jesus into the theological debate. But in verse 3, it's revealed that Jesus has no interest in entering the theological debate. He says, neither Chuck nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, if you know how the rest of the story plays out, these words are rather offensive. And they're offensive because Jesus, the son of God, is saying essentially that God inflicted blindness on Chuck so that Jesus could one day heal him and then everyone could recognize how great Jesus was. That's a very vain portrayal of God. And while I understand if you have that reaction to these words, I would encourage you to focus on what's happening here. The disciples want to make a theological debate out of Chuck. Jesus has no interest in doing this. Instead, Jesus talks about how Chuck was born with purpose and that Chuck was born so that he might bring glory and honor to God. Now, just recognize that for a moment, Chuck, who has been told his whole life that his parents were sinners or that he was a sinner since a baby, is all of a sudden probably hearing for the very first time that God created Chuck to be the person that Chuck is. This is a big moment in Chuck's life. Jesus then speaks about suffering for a couple of verses, and then he decides to do something. In verse 6, we read, When Jesus said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. I love this moment in the story because, <laughs> because it takes a lot of saliva to make mud out of dirt, right? <laughs> so I picture Jesus spitting multiple times and just saying, hang on a second, Chuck. And he just keeps spitting in the ground to finally make it muddy enough to do what happens next. So after making mud, we then read that Jesus spread the mud on Chuck's eyes. Jesus then tells him, go, Wash in the pool of Siloam. And in verse 7 we read, Then he went and washed and came back able to see. It's a miracle, isn't it? The blind has been given sight. 
And it's here that we look at the sixth miracle of Jesus and we think to ourselves, what a beautiful story, the end. But then you look down at the page and you realize that this story is just getting started. We have gone through seven verses in John chapter 9. But there's still 34 verses to go. Not only that, but these 34 verses are all about this story. And what's strange about this miracle is that this should be the end of the story. But this story is just getting started. Because after he goes and washes in the pool of Siloam, all of a sudden Chuck can see. And Chuck's neighbors see Chuck being able to see and they start saying some rather strange things. They ask the question, is this not Chuck who used to sit and beg? In response to that question, some of the neighbors said it is Chuck and others said, no, 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 this isn't Chuck. It's someone like Chuck. To which Chuck had to say, I am Chuck. And in response to that, the neighbors asked, then how were your eyes opened? So Chuck told them the story about how Jesus came along, spat in the dirt, became mud, spread it on his eyes, and then he asked him to wash in the pool of Siloam, and then all of a sudden Chuck could see. And rather than the neighbors being elated that Chuck's disability has been cured, that his sins have been forgiven, they simply respond by asking, well, where is Jesus? And Chuck said, I don't know. I couldn't see until two minutes ago, so I'm kind of getting reoriented to things. So in response to that, the neighbors then decided to bring Chuck before the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the ultra-religious of Chuck's society. They were so religious, in fact, that they actually quit their jobs in order to go and be professional religious people. Their job was to keep all of the rules. And the reason that the neighbors brought Chuck before the Pharisees was because the Pharisees would determine whether or not Chuck's sins had truly been forgiven and this blindness being cured had actually been deserved. So Chuck's neighbors take Chuck to the Pharisees. And on the way there, John reveals a wrinkle in the story. In verse 14, John writes, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened Chuck's eyes. So at this moment, John reveals that Jesus broke the fourth commandment in order to bring healing to Chuck. So here's Chuck standing before the Pharisees, and he begins to tell the story of what happened. The saliva, the mud, the spreading across of the eyes, the washing in the pool of Siloam, and the sudden sight. Upon hearing this story, the Pharisees declare that Jesus is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But other Pharisees objected to this, and they asked the question, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Here, John tells us in verse 16 these words, and the Pharisees were divided. I think this is important for us to acknowledge in 2020 today. And the reason it's important for us to acknowledge is that this is something that we assume this healing of the blind would be a nonpartisan issue. After all, everyone should be elated that Chuck, who was once blind, can now see. But the fact is that Jesus' healing of Chuck is deeply divisive. 
It's really polarizing. And it's polarizing because there's something happening here that we need to pay attention to. So John tells us that the Pharisees were divided. After informing us of this division, a Pharisee then asks Chuck a question. Chuck, what do you say about Jesus? Another Pharisee says, yes, it was your eyes he opened. What do you say? And so Chuck decides to answer. He says, well, I believe that Jesus is a prophet. Now, this didn't sit well with the Pharisees because you have to remember that the Pharisees are the religious elite. Prophets don't come from other people. Prophets come from the Pharisees. And the people look to the Pharisees for religious instruction and ideas, not from poor peasants from Nazareth who all of a sudden can apparently heal people. This answer, Jesus is a prophet, was deeply unsettling to the Pharisees. So unsettling that the Pharisees decided to appeal to a higher authority. They called in Chuck's parents. Now, as Chuck's parents are entering the scene, I want to remind you that they have been told repeatedly that because they have sinned, Chuck is suffering from this blindness. Imagine for a moment how much shame you would feel if your son was born blind and a majority of religious people said, it's your fault. You brought this on him. So Chuck's parents are most likely very wary of religious authority and are a little bit frightened as they step in before the Pharisees. When they step in, though, the Pharisees begin to pepper them with questions. Is Chuck your son? Was he actually born blind? How is it that Chuck can all of a sudden see? After these intense questions, Chuck's parents respond, yes, Chuck is our son, but why don't you ask him how he can see? He can speak for himself. He is of age. This is a non-committal answer because Chuck's parents do not want to be steamrolled by the religious institution anymore. John offers some commentary on Chuck's parents' inability to defend their son. He writes, His parents said these words because they were afraid of the Pharisees, for they had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And so Chuck's parents leave, abandoning their son, letting him fend for himself. The Pharisees then ask Chuck to return before them. Chuck reluctantly returns before the Pharisees, and upon arriving, the Pharisees tell him, Give glory to God. We know that Jesus is a sinner. Chuck responds by saying, I do not know whether Jesus is a sinner, but I do know that I was blind, and now I see. A Pharisee hears this response and then asks Chuck a question. How did Jesus open your eyes? What did he do to you? To which Chuck responded, I already told you. Why do you want me to tell you again? Do you also want to become the disciples of Jesus? Oh man, Chuck went there. The Pharisees hated this question. In verse 28, John writes, then they reviled Chuck. 
They responded by insulting Chuck and saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where Jesus comes from. And it's here that you can almost sense that Chuck realizes that he's not going to get anywhere with these people. So he decides he's going to just stir the pot a little bit more. Because in verse 33, Chuck decides he's going to go for it. He's going to say something. He's going to assert what he knows and witness to what he knows and just see what happens. He tells them these words, if Jesus was not from God, then he would be unable to cure my blindness. Oh man, the Pharisees hated that. At this point, they point at Chuck and they say, you were born entirely in sins. Are you trying to teach us? And the Pharisees are so incensed that Chuck would try to teach them about who God was that they end up throwing him out. Verse 34, John writes, and the Pharisees drove Chuck out. And so here's Chuck outside of the city walls. Just a few moments earlier, he was sitting inside the city walls as a blind beggar. Society had accepted him for what he was, but then all of a sudden he gets cured and society can't handle him. And they drive Chuck out of the city. Now, upon being driven out, Jesus finds Chuck. Jesus approaches him. He offers words of comfort. And after comforting him in verse 39, Jesus says to him, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Now, in response to those words, the Pharisees who were still there from throwing Chuck out of the city overheard what Jesus was saying and they said, hey, Surely we are not blind, are we? Are you calling us blind, Jesus? And Jesus, in the last verse of the chapter, says to the Pharisees, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. And Jesus says to them, essentially, that the very fact that you think you see God so clearly reveals how blind you actually are. So when we look back at this story, the sixth miracle of Jesus in John's gospel, a question I think that we must ask is, what is going on here? Because for the majority of my life, I was told that the Pharisees were mad because Jesus healed Chuck on a Sabbath. But is this really about Jesus healing on the Sabbath? If Jesus healed Chuck on a Tuesday, do you think the Pharisees would have rejoiced over Chuck's healing? I personally don't think so. I believe the Pharisees would have been just as upset about this healing if it happened on a Tuesday as if it happened on the Sabbath as the story tells. Instead, the Pharisees used the Sabbath to justify their indignation and their scorn of Chuck, even though that is what they felt all along. And the reason I feel so strongly about this is because the Pharisees don't cast Chuck out when he says this healing happened on a Saturday. The Pharisees cast Chuck out 
when he begins to attempt to teach them about God. And the Pharisees hear Chuck trying to teach them about God and they freak out because they are convinced that they need to be the ones teaching Chuck about God and not the other way around. In this story, the Pharisees are suffering from the sin of their pride. In their mind, God speaks to them first and then they speak to Chuck, not the other way around. And so the Pharisees are suffering from pride. And the Pharisees' religion affirmed and propped up their false sense of superiority rather than confronting their pride and dismantling it. Think about that for a moment. The religious elite use their religion to enable their sin rather than using their religion to attack and get rid of their sin. Because when we ask the question, what's going on here with this story about spit and mud and healing, I have found that this miracle is unlike all the other miracles in John's gospel. This miracle is a tragedy. This healing doesn't lead to a happy ending. Chuck is cast out. And when we look at what the real culprit of this story is, the culprit is religion. And the story that John wants us to see is that religion can prevent us from seeing the miracles of God. And when I've heard Christians tell this story over and over again in my own life, so often Christians love to celebrate that Jesus gives sight to the blind. But that's only half the miracle. Jesus in John 9:39 says to Chuck these words, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Jesus came into this world for two purposes, to give sight to the blind and to give blindness to those who claim that they can see. This is the totality of Jesus' miracle in John 9. And when the Pharisees come along telling everyone, we understand God better than everyone else alive. To them, Jesus performs the miracle of giving blindness to those who see. And the warning of this story, I think, is incredibly important to you and me. If you identify as religious, then at some point you will be tempted to believe that you are superior to others. I don't care what religion you belong to. At some point, if you start buying into what a religion is, you will be tempted to believe that your ability to buy into that religion somehow makes you better than other people. And the Pharisees were religious people who could not see a miracle of God in front of them because they believed wholeheartedly that their religion made them better than others. And the minute that we start to say to ourselves, well, I understand that, but not me. I've done a really good job of avoiding the temptation to be superior to others because of my religion. It's to you who says those things or to me who says those things that Jesus arrives on this earth to perform the miracle of giving blindness to those who claim they see. Because religion will tempt us 
to believe that we are better than others. And we must remember this when we practice religion because John warns us with this beautiful story that religion can prevent us from seeing the miracles of God. This story in John chapter 9 reminds me of another story told by the greatest orator in American history, Martin Luther King Jr. In 1968, the same year that he was murdered, Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. Now, this is one of my favorite sermons that I've heard, and in it, he told a story that completely changed my understanding of the work of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, the story he tells in this sermon is about a time when he was in jail in Birmingham for protesting against racial inequality in the most segregated city of America in his day. And the way this story goes is he was telling the congregation in 1968 about how when he goes to jail, he likes it because he gets to do some prison visitations and prison ministry. And he works on converting people while he's in prison, specifically the prison guards. And so he said he was in jail, and on the first day of him being in jail in Birmingham, there was a white prison guard who was just saying the most racist, vile things to Martin Luther King Jr. and the other people who were arrested for protesting inequality. On day two, Martin Luther King Jr. started to get to know this person, this white prison guard, started to hear a little bit about his story and understood where this man was coming from. And then on day three in prison, Martin Luther King decided to ask the prison guard the key question. He turned to the prison guard and he asked him, how much do they pay you to keep me in jail here? When the prison guard told him, Martin Luther King said to him, wow, you ought to be out here marching with us. You're just as poor as Negroes. You are put in the position of supporting your oppressor because through prejudice and blindness, you fail to see that the same forces that oppress Negroes in American society also oppress poor white people. And all you are living on is the satisfaction of your skin being white and the drum major instinct of thinking that you are somebody big because you are white. And yet you're so poor you can't send your children to school. You ought to be out here marching with every one of us every time we have a march. And what Martin Luther King points out in this story so profoundly is the idea that the poor white American will go along with what the rich, powerful Americans say because they sell to them this idea that as long as you stick with us, we'll make sure that you get treated better than them. You'll have some social standing that's just a little bit better than them as long as you vote for us. And the only thing that poor white America is living on is the idea that, well, it's bad for me, but at least I have it better than them. Now, it's here that some would dismiss Martin Luther King Jr. as being biased in this conversation. But he was not the only person to make this observation. Back in 1960, when he was a senator for Texas, Lyndon B. Johnson, who would later become president, visited a civil rights exhibit at a museum. 
In this exhibit, he saw all kinds of pictures that captured what the civil rights movement was about and what they were working toward. And on the car ride home, he was speaking with his assistant, a man named Bill Moyers, and he said these words to him on that ride. He said, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And what Lyndon B. Johnson and Martin Luther King both pointed out eight years apart from each other is the fact that white Americans are motivated and will do crazy things all in an effort to maintain their superiority over black Americans. I tell you this because when you look back at history, what you have to understand about American history is that our history is inextricably woven with the sin of white supremacy. And this white supremacy begins at the very inception of our nation. If you go back to July 4, 1776, with the founding fathers gathered around the Declaration of Independence, the words that begin this declaration are, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But very few people in the room actually believe those words, even though they signed their name on this declaration. 34 out of the 47 people who signed the declaration held or owned slaves at some point in their life. And yet you wonder how they could sign in clear conscience these words that all men are created equal. Well, the fact is that the overwhelming majority of America's founding fathers did not see people of African descent as human. They didn't think they were actually men. And this is what begins the story of the United States of America, right? Now, it's here that somebody could say, oh, Craig, I know it was a rough start, but 100 years later, there was the Emancipation Proclamation, and that was eventually brought into law by way of the 13th Amendment after the bloody Civil War. But when you look closely at the words of the 13th Amendment, you realize it says something else entirely. The words of the 13th Amendment are neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We read that slavery is outlaw except as a punishment for crime. What the 13th Amendment actually tells us is that slavery is more than acceptable within America as long as you enslave convicts. For that reason, shortly after the Civil War, there was an explosion of racially motivated arrests throughout the southern United States of America. Now, several of these arrests were on bogus charges, all in an effort to arrest African Americans. And once these African Americans were arrested, what would happen is the state would then lease back these convicts to plantation owners at a very low rate, and the state would make money on leasing these convicts and the plantation owners would get really cheap labor. This practice was known as convict leasing and it is abhorrent and it is part of America's history. This was a new form of legalized slavery after the 13th Amendment was written, all because of the loophole that said it's okay to enslave people as long as they're guilty of a crime.
This abhorrent practice went on for seven decades. Finally, in the 20s, convict leasing was outlawed as an inhumane practice. But white supremacy didn't end there. At the end of the 19th century, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Ferguson against Homer Plessy and legalized Jim Crow laws throughout the United States of America. Now, Jim Crow laws relegated African Americans to a second-class status within society by way of explicit racial segregation. There were white drinking fountains, and there were drinking fountains for non-whites. There were areas that whites could sit, and there were areas for non-whites to sit. This segregation went on for over six decades in the United States of America, when it was finally brought to a close in 1964 by the Civil Rights Act. But white supremacy was not done. Because just six years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, America began a mass incarceration that was racist in its practice and targeted African Americans and Latino Americans. To give you an idea of what this mass incarceration looks like, since 1970, our population in the country has increased by 55%. In that same time, our prison population has increased by 650%. Not only that, but today in 2020, black men make up 13% of America's population. However, black men make up 40% of America's prison population. Now, it's here that most white Americans like to blame black culture because black culture, in their minds, leads black men to commit crimes against the state. But study after study reveals that that simply isn't true. Just this past year, in 2019, the Washington Post posted an article called 21 More Studies Showing Racial Disparities in the Criminal Justice System by a man named Radley Balco. In that article, he said that one study that was recently done proved that police were more likely to pull over black drivers instead of white drivers. Not only that, but he also pointed out that they found that black and Latino drivers are more likely to be searched for contraband, even though white drivers are consistently more likely to be found with contraband. Our criminal justice system in America today is slanted heavily against black and Latino Americans and poor Americans. Author Michelle Alexander looks at this mass incarceration and has labeled it the new Jim Crow. The way that white supremacy has moved from slavery to convict leasing to Jim Crow to this mass incarceration she is saying is the same thing. This is also picked up by film director Ava DuVernay in her excellent film, 13th, in which she looks at that loophole that is in the 13th Amendment and how white supremacists have exploited that and continue to exploit it to this day. And while we in California often like to think that racism is a problem for the southern United States of America, this is happening in California today. During the horrendous and frightening fires of 2018, California relied on inmates to bravely and tirelessly fight fires alongside firefighters. 
As a thanks for their service, California paid those inmates $1 per hour. And the only reason they can pay them $1 per hour is because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment. Now, according to NBC, this program of using volunteer firefighters that they pay $1 an hour saves California between 90 and $100 million as they fought fires in 2018. We are indebted to our prison population for helping us to overcome that frightening time. My brothers and sisters, American history is inextricably woven with the sin of white supremacy. And what nobody told me as I was growing up in America as a white man is that I faced the same temptation those Pharisees faced in John chapter 9. If you are white and you live in America, then you will be tempted to believe in the superiority of your skin. And the minute as a white American, I say, oh, no, 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 I'm much too good for that. I, I know that I don't think I'm better than other people. Well, that is the minute that Jesus tells me that he did not come to this earth just to give sight to the blind, but that Jesus also came to this earth to give blindness to those who claim to see. And the minute I think I'm above this temptation is the minute that I have entered into blindness. And so the best thing I can do is to be aware of this temptation, to speak about how I face this temptation, and to do my best to avoid falling to this temptation. And when you look at these stories from John chapter 9 to the story of American history, what so often prevents the work of God from coming into its full tuition is a human being or a group of human beings desire to prove that they are better than others. My brothers and sisters, may we let go of our desire to be superior to others. Whether we experience privilege because of the color of our skin or because of our gender or our education or the amount of money we have or because of our healthy body, May we not fall to the temptation to believe that those things somehow make us better than another. May we let go of our desire to be superior to others so that we may truly see the work of God. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.